Hello, and welcome to History Through Fiction, the podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by D.G. Schulman, author of the novel Anna's Promise. A journey of rebellion and transformation threatens the bonds of love and family. The seeds of the novel that became Ashton Hall uh, were planted in my mind then, so many decades ago. Every one of these small details builds a castle, if you will, uh, of authenticity in a place where the reader, I hope, can feel comfortable. Hello, and welcome to History Through Fiction, the podcast. I'm your host, Colin Mustful, and today I am so happy to be joined by Lauren Belfer, author of the novel Ashton Hall. It's when the characters are telling you, or telling me, what they are interested in that I know the work is going well. Lauren Belfer was born in Rochester, New York, and grew up in Buffalo, where she attended the Buffalo Seminary. At Swarthmore College, she majored in medieval studies. After graduating, she worked as a file clerk at an art gallery, a paralegal, an assistant photo editor at a newspaper, a fact checker at magazines, and as a researcher and associate producer on documentary films. She has an MFA from Columbia University. Belfer's debut novel, City of Light, was a New York Times bestseller, as well as a New York Times notable book, a Library Journal best book, and a main selection of the Book of the Month Club. City of Light was a bestseller in Great Britain and has been translated into six languages. Today, I'll be talking to her about her novel, Ashton Hall. So could you please start by telling us more about Ashton Hall and its actual history? Well, Ashton Hall is the story of an American woman who goes to England with her son to care for an ill relative who's staying at a stately home, uh, the Ashton Hall of the title. Um, Soon after they arrive, uh, the woman's young son, who's named Nicky, wanders through the deserted wings of the house and discovers a skeleton of a person who has died in a blocked off room in the manor. And this sets off a process of discovery of Hannah searching through the past to find out this woman's history. And at the same time, she discovers things about her own life. Um, but this isn't, this isn't just a fictional building, is it? It is a real place? Well, it's a good question. Um, 
The idea for the novel Ashton Hall first came to me uh, many years ago when I was in my early 20s, and I was invited to stay at the private apartment that was being rented by a friend of a friend at an actual stately home in England, a Blickling Hall in Norfolk, which is a National Trust historic home. And at that point, I had no idea that many of the uh, stately homes that are open to the public actually have private apartments, but many of them do. And it, the rental fees are a way to offset the great expense of maintaining the homes. Um, and I think the National Trust, at least, also wants to have families continuing to live at the homes so, they, so that the homes don't just turn into museums. So a friend of a friend, as I say, was renting an apartment at Blickling Hall, invited me to stay, and I was astonished by what I discovered there because after the public visiting hours, um, the, the rooms of the house were all open to me to explore. And I went through the extraordinary public rooms and also up into the attics. And the seeds of the novel that became Ashton Hall uh, were planted in my mind then, so many decades ago. So the novel is loosely based on Ashton Hall, on Blickling Hall. But as I say, I didn't begin working on it for many years. And when the plot finally came to me, I realized that the Blickling Hall that I had visited uh, wasn't really able to serve the different plot points that I wanted to present in the book. And so I wove together several different stately homes into the fictional Ashton Hall of the book. So for example, um, I took from Mattingly Hall, a stately home near Cambridge, uh, the row of lime trees leading up to the house. Um, from Audley End, another stately home near Cambridge, I took some of the monumentality uh, wove that into the book. So step by step, I took pieces of these different houses until I created the fictional Ashton Hall that has come alive in my imagination. And what did you learn about the history of these great halls and, and how they came about and what their function was centuries ago? Well, each one... I think had a very complex history. Um, of course, they were first and foremost family homes, but then they became a reflection too of the image that the family wanted to present to the greater world. One home I visited that figures in the novel, Oxborough Hall, was and still is uh, the home of a Catholic family. And that home includes a priest hole where priests were hidden during the Elizabethan era. Um, I had never known about priest holes until I began researching the novel. In fact, I had never known about the extent of 
the official suppression of Catholics in Elizabethan England. And I was shocked when I learned about it. I was very shocked when I went into the priest hole as a terrifying room. And to think that, you know, people hid there in fear of their lives um, it was a very powerful experience even now to, to go into that priest hole. So happily, the, the period of history I was researching and the houses I was visiting were in their prime um, well before the era of the slave trade. And you know, because a lot of the stately homes built, I guess in the 18th century primarily, uh, were built with profits from the slave trade. And of course, reflect a really um, horrifying, despicable part of English history. And that history is only now being brought to the fore for those houses. But as I say, I, I felt some measure of relief that, that although the houses I was dealing with have a very complex history, I didn't have to face those horrifying issues head on. Sure. Was it fun, though, uh, visiting these places? It seems to be a benefit of being a historical novelist is getting to, to do some travel research. Yes, the research was really fun. <laughs> and um, one part of the, the novel grew out of a, an experience my husband and I had of actually living in England. Um, I will say that I've been an Anglophile ever since I was 11 or 12 years old when I became obsessed with reading about English history. And it had always been my dream to live in England. So one day, some years ago, my, my husband received an invitation uh, to spend a semester at, at an institute affiliated with Cambridge University in England. And he went back and forth a little bit about going, but I said, no, absolutely, we have to go. I've always wanted to have that chance to live in England. So we met, went. Um, the Institute rented a house for us uh, that was built in 1642, which initially I thought was going to be just so incredibly exciting and romantic you know, to live in a house uh, dating back centuries. But I must say it was uh, very cold in that house, very drafty, uh, very low ceilings. Um, so I, we had this wonderful experience of, of living in a historic place, but also learning that the romantic notions that we often have about the past are, don't always play out. And the reality of living in England wasn't necessarily what I had always dreamed and, uh, and imagined it might be. Well, let's move on to the story. Um, why don't you tell us about the main character, Hannah Larson? You, you kind of indicated about how you came up with Ashton Hall, but what about the, the characters that, that inhabit the hall? I often find that writing fiction is a very intuitive process and that the ideas for my novels sort of come into my mind as if a door is opening in my mind and I'm walking through into a world that I never imagined before. Ashton Hall is my fourth novel, uh, 
and it's the first of my novels to take place entirely in the present, even though it's about the unraveling of a secret from the past. Uh, so when I first got the idea of how the novel was going to unfold, uh, it was during the time I was living in Cambridge with my husband. And as I say, I, I was walking down one of the narrow historic streets of the town and I I just felt the kind of door opening in my mind, and I realized that I could move Blickling Hall to the outskirts of Cambridge, change some of the details, give it a new name, Ashton Hall, and the character of Hannah and her family and her friends, they all just poured into my mind at once. So Hannah is in her late 30s. Um, she trained as an academic, was working on a PhD in art history, focused on the classical world, um, and she had a child, Nikki, who grew to be, or actually always was, um, neurodivergent, and she left uh, her career path to care for him, and she loves him very deeply. So after Nikki makes this extraordinary discovery of the skeleton uh, hidden away at Ashton Hall, um, Hannah is primed to begin exploring who this person could be. And because of her previous academic training, she knows how to do this. She's ready to go. And she discovers things about the, about the past that she had never dreamed of. And she also, in the process of living in England, discovers things about herself and about the future she wants to build for herself and for her son. I want to ask more about some of the discoveries she makes because uh, you have a character here who's doing research and I imagine you were doing much of the same research. Did, did any of your research overlap with what the, the research the character was doing in the novel? Well, yes. I you know, the reason or one of the reasons I set the novel entirely in the present was that I wanted to explore how we as individuals today go about rediscovering the past. And this question was very important and very personal to me because I was I was writing this novel just after I had gone through a long period of working with my cousins to rediscover the history of our family in Europe before the Second World War. And I had been searching for the family name and business directories from Poland before the war, for example. Um, those are available online. I've been searching birth and death records. Um, I had been looking through the Ellis Island website, searching for information about my family. And there was very little that, that I could find. And as I searched for my family, I began to wonder, well, what would historians of the future find about me if they ever decided to search for information about me? And I thought, well, really there wouldn't be very much evidence. Um, primarily um, my credit card bills, 
my checking account statements, tax returns, uh, maybe the charitable donations I've made that would show what I valued in life. And most importantly, thought my life would be revealed by the lists of books that I checked out of the libraries wherever I've lived. Uh, since childhood, I've been a really avid reader, uh, frequently visiting local public libraries. Uh, my mother used to take me to the library, gee, as far back as I can remember. And I realized that a comprehensive listing of the books that I've borrowed since I first had a library card would disclose a very great deal about me, maybe even more than I wanted researchers of the future to know about me. So when I began writing Ashton Hall and had this question of how does my fictional character, Hannah Larson, discover the history of the person who died alone in that blocked off room, I decided to bring in account ledgers for the, fam the fictional family in the novel because account ledgers would have been the equivalent of credit card bills and checking account statements for the people of the Tudor era. And I based the account ledgers that I created on actual account ledgers that are available in research libraries and in books to be read today. And when I was researching a, a history of the libraries of the National Trust, I learned that library registers have been discovered for country houses like Blickling Hall and my fictional Ashton Hall going back centuries. So I decided to recreate a fictional library register for Ashton Hall. But it was very important to me that all of the books in my fictional library register, all those books would be real books, books that actually existed in the 1500s. And I don't know if many readers would truthfully really care if the books in the library were real, but it mattered a lot to me because that small detail seemed to me to give a gravitas to the books in the library. It made the fictional characters that much more real to me, to know that they were reading books that actually existed. Hey listeners, this is Colin Mustful, the founder of History Through Fiction, and I just wanted to take a quick break to tell you more about the sponsor of today's episode, Anna's Promise by D.G. Schulman. David and Alexandrov lock eyes and grip each other's hands. The Cossacks gather around their commandant, cheering and howling as the two men engage in a battle of strength and positioning. The stakes are David's daughters. His determination to save them is palpable, and the reader is pulled into the scene, rooting for him to come out on top. This scene is a small taste of the rich and emotionally charged historical fiction that Anna's Promise offers. Slipping between war-torn Poland and modern American life, 
Anna's promise weaves together the story of one Jewish family across three generations. The novel follows the journey of Anna, David's daughter, a young woman who endures the hardships and persecution of World War I Poland to keep a promise made to her father. In 1975, through her relationship with her grandson, Ben, Anna discovers the strength of her own convictions as the family battles gangsters, the law, and faces the ultimate test of love and loyalty. Well, that's really fascinating, and I think that's great that that you added that level of authenticity. You certainly went through some hard work to do it, and it reminds me, you know, I'm sure you've had this experience when you're reading, editing one of your books, and you think you're almost done, and you're like, you come across something where someone's using a ballpoint pen, and you're like, what? <laughs> they did not use, you know, it's it's hard to get all those details right, isn't it? Oh, you know, it's torture because. When you're writing historical fiction, every single detail has to be correct because, well, this is true for any novel, actually, because a novel, it seems to me, is like a house of cards. And if a reader is going along and suddenly discovers a ballpoint pen, say, in the 1550s, all of the trust that the reader has in the story is broken. Because how can you have a, what, that suspension of disbelief that you need to kind of throw yourself into a story if you can't trust the author? So I work very, very hard uh, to make sure that, that every single detail is correct. And by doing that, I often discover things I never expected. So, for example, in Ashton Hall, uh, one of the characters is an artist, and I needed to collect um, the implements that she would use to make drawings in the late 16th century, so the late 1500s. So I started researching this, you know, what would an artist have used? And I discovered charcoal and chalk, and then I wondered, well, were pencils available? And some books seem to indicate that indeed pencils were available, but I didn't necessarily believe this, so I did more and more research to the discovery of um, graphite, which was indeed uh, discovered and used in the 16th century, and I found pictures from the historical era that you know my book goes back to of um, graphite wrapped in string. And so, yes, I could include a pencil in, with the character and know that she could have used one. Again, a tiny detail, but to me, um, it's so compelling to know that, yes, she would have used a pencil. Um, these are small details, but I, I just think every one of these small details kind of builds, um, builds a castle, if you will, of authenticity in a place where the reader, I hope, can feel comfortable and feel that he or she is really learning something, uh, living the lives of these characters and also learning about the past, because that is the wonderful thing about historical fiction. 
And I'm certain something you think about a lot, Colin, through your history through fiction press, you know, where you're publishing books that are really focused on illuminating history through the medium of fiction, through individual lives. Yeah, definitely. And those, those are all really good points about the craft of, of what, what we do. Um, I like the analogy of the House of Cards and you know, maybe just another little insider information for the reader. You could be reading your, your manuscript and notice something like that, like a pencil. You could think, okay, I'm, I'm getting through this. I'm going to have this done by the end of the week. And all of a sudden you reach a point like that and you think, wait a minute, I have to, I have to figure out if this is accurate or not. And then it's two weeks later before you get back to that part of the story. Yes, that happens all the time. But I find those moments so exciting that, that even though, you know, for me, each one of my books has taken about five years to research and write. And that's a really long time. To me, writing itself is a difficult process or slow process. But um, the research is always wonderful. It's always its own reward. And I also find that I, the characters guide me towards so much research as I'm recreating their lives um, because I feel as a fiction writer, it's when the characters are telling you or telling me what they are interested in that I know the work is going well. And I don't mean this in some kind of supernatural sense, but I mean, as a small example, in Ashton Hall, the young boy, Nicky, um, he suddenly develops an interest in chess. And when this happened, I, I didn't know very, very much about chess, but he was interested in it. And so I had to do a lot of research to find out a lot about chess so I could um, convincingly portray him playing chess. And that took a long time. Uh, and yet that was a joy to discover. And now I want to sign up and take chess lessons because it sounds like a really fun and interesting game. Let's talk a little bit more about Nikki and the relationship he has with his mother, or rather maybe the relationship his mother has with him. One reviewer stated that Hannah's relationship with her son is one of the most effective portrayals of raising a child with special needs in recent literature. Uh, I'm wondering, was that something from personal experience or how are you able to to recreate that re relationship in, in such uh, a profound way? Well, Nikki is neurodivergent. Um, that's a rather new term. Um, when I've gone around the country talking to people about the novel, I find that many people don't know the term neurodivergent or neurodiverse or neurodiversity. These are all words that have become um, kind of umbrella terms, I think is the best way to think of them. Uh, umbrella terms that bring together things like ADHD or autism spectrum. Um, and I think it's, these are really good terms, these new terms, because um, no child, no person is just a narrow label where you give them a, a label like, oh, 
he or she is ADHD. No, every child is a broad person, an individual who has many, many characteristics. And so a Nikki is based on many neurodiverse children I've known over the years in my family and in the families of friends. Um, many children have these characteristics to one extent or another. And I tried to show through Hannah's experiences the challenges and the great rewards of raising children who whose brains work a bit differently from what is considered typical or the majority of, of the way people think. Um, and I wanted to explore all the ramifications of that. Uh, I think, to me, Nikki is really the hero of the story. Um, he is the one who changes the most ac across the arc of the story. And um, he is also the one who sets the story in motion uh, because of his great sense of exploration uh, that leads him to explore Ashton Hall and discover this person, this individual who had been walled into the hidden room centuries before. Well, I want to ask a little bit more about what they find, the, 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 you know, the history, the people that had lived there before. Um, it seems that Hannah is able to kind of form a relationship with those women of the past. What does she learn about them that is still relevant for women today? Yes, as Hannah explores the history that she discovers through those account ledgers and through the library registers, she really conjures in her mind uh, what the women of Ashton Hall before her must have been like, what their lives must have been like. And I hope that the reader taking these bits and pieces of evidence in the account ledgers and in the library registers, um, I hope the reader conjures an image too, uh, which might not necessarily be the same uh, image that that Hannah takes from the clues that she finds. Um, again, these are just clues that they're discovering in the original sources, and they have to make conclusions from, from these clues. But one thing that Hannah really feels, uh, this is at a point in her life when she's really struggling with her future and with a betrayal that, has happened in her marriage and you know I don't want to give away the whole plot of the book but but she's struggling with her future and as she looks at the women of the past she sees that you know they had very limited options because they couldn't control their own destinies uh, in large measure because they couldn't support themselves and their children and that is something that she struggles with, too. That if she's going to have any kind of independence and support her son the way he needs to be supported, she has to find a way to support herself, uh, to take control of her own destiny. So they're very much alike in that way. Um, one thing that I wove into the book well, 
I should back up for a second and say that I was doing a lot of the research for this book during the worst days of the COVID-19 pandemic. And in the course of my research, I read that, that women in Tudor times, particularly upper-class women, often worked as informal physicians in their communities. They weren't called physicians, but they functioned in that way in for the household and for the local village. And so they were trained, often trained in herbal medicine. And now this was an era um, when there were there was constantly recurring um, episodes of of plague, of the Black Death. And you know, reading about this is that you know the city of Norwich near Blickling Hall uh, in one year lost a third of its population to plague. And next, the next year, the plague returned and decimated the already decimated population of Norwich. So reading about that while going through the pandemic of our own era was a very powerful experience. And then additionally, reading some of the herbals that Tudor women used to try to fight plague, you know, that was very, very powerful. And it that's the reason um, that I made the character of Catherine in the novel um, into someone who was possessed with herbal, obsessed rather with herbal medicine as she tried to save her family members and tried to save the members of the community just using these medicines from herbs, which did they work? Uh, not always, uh, but it was all they had. There seems something so tragic in that. Um, so I brought, I wove all that into the novel, and it was very powerful to me uh, because of the time period that I was writing the book. I want to move on to you as a writer. One thing I always am interested in hearing is is an author's kind of story to how they got to where they are. Now, I know for you, that's probably a very long story. But one thing I'm particularly curious about is seeing all the different jobs that you went through and now seeing where you're at with numerous uh, novels and many awards. Was there ever a point during that long process where you just wanted to throw up your hands and, and give up the the writing endeavors, or how, how did that go for you? You know, I often feel every single day that it's so hard that I question whether I want to keep doing it. I mean, I do keep doing it because um, out of desperation, I suppose, I it is what I do. Every novel is different. And in my last novel, I and after the fire, I was very lucky. It won the National Jewish Book Award, which was wonderful. Um, but that didn't make writing Ashton Hall any easier uh, because Ashton Hall is a different novel. Um, and now I'm working on another novel. And, you know, it's really difficult. So the process of writing, I don't think, ever gets easier. I decided to become a writer when I was six years old. And, you know, I, my early uh, 
writing projects, if you will, were um, short stories about heroic dogs and cats. And, and in, in high school, I wrote poetry. My wonderful English teachers encouraged me to send it to literary journals. I collected rejection letters from all the best places. Then after college, you know, I worked all kinds of jobs while still getting up early to write novels in the, in the early morning before going to work. Um, it wasn't until I got the idea for my first novel, City of Light, that I realized I should be writing historical fiction because I'd always been interested in history. For some reason, I know this is going to sound strange. It never occurred to me that I could turn my interest in history into fiction. But once I got the idea for City of Light, that, that just seemed so obvious that that was the the way that I had to go, that each of my books would explore part of the past. And can you tell us a little bit about the project you're working on now? Oh, well, thank you for asking. But I am extremely superstitious. And um, I, I just, uh, I never talk about work in progress. But I also realize, um, I think the real reason is that a novel is an organic being in a way. It's always developing. Uh, you know, even if you create kind of a few sentences to describe it right at the beginning, even if you make an outline, which I always make an outline, I always want to know the end of the book before I start writing. So even if you have all these things in place, the book is always going to evolve as you're working on it, because the characters have to take on lives of their own in order for the book to be alive on the page. Um, the characters need to bring the energy of their personalities to the work. And so I'm never entirely sure uh, how I'm going to get to the end that I, that I had in mind at the beginning. And I worry that if at any point in the process I begin talking about it, that I'm, it's like the equivalent of saying, well, I'm taking a Fifth Avenue today and no way am I going off Fifth Avenue. Because I've closed off all the other streets that my characters might have turned down, uh, at least in my mind. And I never want to do that to them. I always want to have that feeling of excitement that we're moving forward and that we together, my characters and I, um, again, I don't mean this in a supernatural way because of course it's, it's the imaginative process. Uh, I always want to feel there's something open as we look into the future. I think that's fair enough. Um, well, Lauren, thank you so much for joining me and congratulations. I think you have a lot to be proud of here. And we'll definitely look forward to, to see what's coming next. Oh, thank you so much, Colin. It's great to talk to you. And I wish you the very best with your own work. I know that you two are sort of fighting this battle of, of writing historical fiction. And um, I hope your work goes well and that your work uh, publishing books through this wonderful press, History Through Fiction, um, I hope that goes well, too.